Well, amen, amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I'm sure that you do, would you take them out, please, and go to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 is where we are as we continue in our series titled, Acts the Unstoppable Church. And uh, we are unstoppable because this is our God, and that's whom we worship today. Amen. Can we give a hand clap of praise to our worship ministry for leading us today? Thank you. Well, take out your Bibles, Acts chapter 9, um, and I've titled today's message, What's Your Story? What's Your Story? By show of hands here this morning, how many of you like a good story? Let, let me see your hand. You like a good story. Thank you very much. Put your hands down. How many of you know somebody who is a really good storyteller? Let me see your hands go up in the air. Yeah, we have several in our church who are really good storytellers. Uh, sometimes I don't know if you're telling the truth or not, but it's a good story. You know, we have some good storytellers. I myself grew up in a family full of storytellers, but, but we all like stories. We like them. They capture our imagination. They, they capture our heart. They, they capture our emotions. And then you, then you think about the one that we follow, Jesus. What did he use to often teach? He used what? Stories. The Bible calls them parables. But, but we all like a good story. I remember in high school, one of uh, my classmates, his name was Wesley Scott. Wesley was a great storyteller. One summer, he told us he went to an amusement park called Six Flags Over Texas, very similar to what we have here in Georgia, and he rode the shockwave. Now this is back in the day before roller coasters were really, really big, like a big deal they are today, but at the time, the shockwave was the biggest and the baddest roller coaster at the Six Flags over Texas. It had two loops in it, and it was a frightening roller coaster back in the day. Well, Wesley comes back to school after that summer, and he tells us he goes to Six Flags, and he rides the shockwave. And then he tells us that as he is in the roller coaster making the first loop, he said he fell out of the roller coaster. And that the roller coaster was moving so fast on the way down, and he fell so fast that at just the right time, he fell back into the same seat. <laughs> we knew he was lying, but it was a great story. It was a great story. It was so good that I remember it 30 years later. That's what a good story Storytelling is a powerful tool to communicate. You even think about in Hollywood today, specifically uh, Pixar. Pixar has made some great movies, and they have a great storyline. They've made great movies like Toy Story 1, Sto Toy Story 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and seven is on and on and on. They make a great story. They have other movies, um, Up, uh, Monsters, Inc., Cars, The Incredibles, all of these great movies, and they all tell the story. Now, here's the interesting thing about Pixar. Whenever they write a movie, they use the same story structure. It's the same story structure. And here's their structure. Once upon a time, there was a blank. Every day they 
fill in the blank, but one day, blank, and everything changed. That's their story structure. Once upon a time, there was blank, and every day, blank, but one day, fill in the blank, and everything changed. Well, in Acts chapter 9, we read a great story. It's a great story, and let me give you the, the Pixar introduction to this story. Once upon a time, there was a man named Saul, and every day he threatened to kill and imprison those who followed Jesus. But one day, on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to him, and everything changed. Now that's a good story. You would pay 30 bucks to go to the movies and buy popcorn and Coke just to watch that movie. Isn't that right? Well, it's a good story. Now, as we look at Acts chapter 9 and uh, this story, I do want to make a little note. Whenever I use the word story, I don't mean this is make-believe. Are you with me? What we're going to read in every story, every um, historical event that we find from Genesis all the way to Revelation, this is no fable. This is true. This is real life. This happened. And so when I say a story, don't misunderstand to think that, oh, well, pastor thinks this is some kind of good story that can only be told to, to boys and girls as children. No, this is, this is true. This isn't make-believe. Now, let me tell you, let me give you three reasons why Acts chapter 9 is a great story. And I want you to write these down. Acts chapter 9, um, I believe this is a great story because this is the greatest conversion story in the Bible. Acts 9 is the greatest conversion story in the Bible. Of all the conversions that we find in Genesis through Revelation, none is greater or more profound than the conversion of this man named Saul of Tarsus. And many of you, if you've grown up in the church, you know who Saul is, whose name later was changed to Paul. Some of you may be um, introduced to him for the very first time this morning. Maybe you don't fully understand him, but that's totally okay. But here's what we know about Saul of Tarsus. He was raised a Jew. He was trained as a rabbi, and he became a violent uh, um, uh, persecutor of the early Christian church. He hated every Christian. He hated the followers of Jesus, and Saul made it his life's goal to eradicate all those who followed Jesus as their Lord and Savior. In modern terms, here's how we would, here's what word we would use to describe Saul. He was a terrorist. That's the word. Because he brought terror upon people. He did not graduate from Glen Academy, but he was still a terrorist. He's a terrorist. But in our story, one day something changed in his life. One day something changed and his life was permanently transformed. He met Jesus. And the story goes in Acts chapter 9 that as soon as he met Jesus, he was, he was radically changed, but he was changed instantaneously so that even believers really didn't want to believe him. They didn't want to believe that he could have such a change. 
And so they kind of stood back from him. And, but Paul saw Paul had to live his life where he proved, he proved his conversion. One scholar said this about Saul, whom we know as Paul, that, that next to Jesus, Paul is the greatest and most important figure in the New Testament. I'd agree with that. Because once Paul became a believer in Jesus Christ, he goes from a persecutor to a great protector of God's people. And you will see that in the New Testament, there are 27 books in the New Testament. You know how many Paul wrote? Say 13. He wrote 13. He wrote Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and what's that last one? Philemon. Paul is an important figure in the New Testament. Let me give you a little, let me give you a little um, physical description uh, of Paul for you. This is just for, just for your information's sake, but it comes from some extra biblical accounts. This is what it says Paul looked like. He was described as a man small of stature. And then it says he was bald. Pretty good. But then scriptures, I mean, then some d descriptions go on to say this about him. With eyebrows going all the way across. He had a unibrow. He had a caterpillar. That's what he had. And he had a crooked nose. He had bowed legs. But this is what it says about him. But he was full of friendliness. And one person described it like this. He appeared like a man and sometimes had the face of an angel. It's a pretty ugly angel though, right? <laughs> but there you go. That's Saul, whom we later know as Paul. Acts 9, the greatest conversion story in all of Scripture. This is why this is a great story. Here's the second reason why this is a great story, and I want you to stay with me here. It's because Christianity is based on conversion. I want you to hear me out. If you don't get anything from today, get this. Christianity, our faith, it's based on conversion. Everything that you and I say and we do is built upon the fundamental and revolutionary truth that Jesus has come into our lives, and he says this, you don't have to stay the way you are. You can change. You don't have to continue down the path of self-defeat that ends up in eternal defeat. You don't have to stay on that path. You can change. You can be converted. Our faith is based upon that foundational truth that Jesus Christ came as a perfect son of God, son of man, willingly died for our sin. He was crucified, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again to defeat sin so that you could live a different life. You can be different. You can be changed. And in biblical terms, this is called a conversion. The Bible says you must be converted. Now, what's conversion? Conversion is when well, the God of creation, the sovereign, holy God, when God reveals himself to you through his son, Jesus Christ, 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. When God reveals himself to you, where you and God intersect, and you are convicted of your sin, and you fall on your knees, you confess your sin to Jesus, he comes and becomes Savior and Lord of your life, and then you live for him the rest of your days. That's conversion. And I think all of us would agree today that we have seen many people who make a profession of faith, yet never live for Jesus. Would you be in agreement with that statement? That's not conversion. Are you with me? It's a changed life. This is why Acts 9 is a great story. It's about conversion. It's about living differently because of what Jesus Christ has done in your life. Yesterday, um, I had a great conversation with a man at, um, at, at a cross-country meet. And um, so just struck up this conversation with this man, um, and I'm, I'm going to call his name uh, Don. Um, and, and Don had, uh, he, you know, he began to strike up this conversation, and, and in this conversation, Don told me that, his, that his, da- his dad had passed away this just this past week. I asked him how he was doing, and, and Don said, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing okay. And then he volunteered this, and he said this. He said, you want to know why I'm doing okay? I said, please tell me. And Don began to tell me his story and his story of his dad. And he told me that he and his dad had a horrible relationship. That at the age of 15, his dad left him and his family. And Don said this, I grew up angry. I was angry at God. I was angry that this man in my life who gave me life would just up and leave me and my family. At the age of 15, my dad left. I was angry at God. He began to tell me, he said, I, I, my dad and I did not have much of a relationship at all. But then Don said this, but in my late 20s, when I became a dad, here's what he said. He said, God did something in my own life. He said, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't know about Jesus. But he said, in my 20s, people kept telling me about this man named Jesus, 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 Jesus. Then finally, when I became a dad, I wanted to raise my kids the right way. Didn't want to be like my dad. Went to church. The pastor preached the gospel, and I accepted Jesus, and my life changed. And God said, from that moment on, I lived differently. I changed. But I still didn't like my dad. He said, I still didn't like my dad until earlier this year when I got a phone call that my dad was dying from cancer. And he said, I knew then I had to go be reconciled with my dad because he's still my dad. No matter what, he's still my dad. So he said he flew out to go meet him had a conversation with his dad, and finally he said this. He says, Dad, when you die, do you know where you're going to go? And his dad said, Heaven. 
And Don said, well, tell me, tell me why you're going to heaven. His dad told him this whole story, why he's going to heaven. And once he was finished, Don looked at his dad and said, Dad, what you have told me is wrong. You are on a highway to hell. And then his dad said this, then what must I do to be saved? And right there, the son led his dad to, to a conversion experience. And now, as of a couple of days ago, his dad is in eternity with Jesus. This all happens because Don himself had a life-changing conversion with Jesus. You live differently. Amen? Are you with me this morning? So why is Acts 9 a great story? It's a great story. It's the greatest conversion in the Bible. Christianity is based on conversion. And then here's the last thing. We're going to dive into our text. Acts chapter 9, it's going to teach us this, that nobody is too far gone because of God's grace. Amen? Nobody is too far gone. Anybody in this room, you're watching online, you are not too far gone because of God's grace. Well, let's dive into our story. Let's find out what God does in the life of Saul. If you were to take an evangelism class, you would be taught to use a three-point outline in giving your testimony. Number one, your life before Christ. Number two, uh, your conversion. And number three, your life since Christ. Well, this is the outline that we see in Acts chapter 9. I want you to follow along. Think about your own testimony, what your life was like before you met Christ, how you came to Christ, and then what's the difference he made in your life. You ready? Say amen. amen. I want you to write this down right now. Paul's life before Christ. Here's Paul's life before Christ. Pick up in verse number one, Acts chapter nine. And now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found anyone belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Stop there, because here is the once upon a time lived a man section of the story. Here's Saul. This is what he was like before he met Christ, and it paints a chilling picture, does it not? Who is this man, Saul? Well, what we know from Scripture, um, we know that in Acts chapter 7, we're first introduced to Saul as he, as he was stood by all those who stoned Stephen to death, as he held um, the, the cloaks in his hand of the ones who threw stones. And we know in, in Acts chapter 8, verses 1, 2, and 3, we know that, that Saul was ravaging the homes all in Jerusalem and in other uh, places. And so we can say this about Saul. He was passionate about his career, was he not? He was passionate about his career. He wanted to destroy every single believer that was living. Let me ask you a question. In what we know about Saul so far, do you think Paul, Saul, was interested in becoming a Christian? No, he wasn't. He had no desire. He's not what you and I would call a, a seeker. And because of that, that's one of the reasons why I have big problems with churches who call them seeker-sensitive churches. 
Because the Bible says there's no such thing as a man who seeks after God. Are you with me, church? You don't see that. Paul was not looking for Christ. He had no desire for Jesus. He did not want to be in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. He wanted to do everything he can to get rid of the followers of Jesus. In our text, it says that he was breathing, verse 1, he was breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. Uh, those words in Greek means this, he was full of rage, full of anger. He was a religious fanatic. He was a, a man who was wholly given over to the hatred of Christians, and he was convinced he was right. And he was convinced that Christians were wrongs were wrong. He hated Christianity. He hated everything about it. He was, he was lost, and he didn't even know it. He enjoyed his life, and he didn't want to change. Do you know anybody like that in your circle of influence? They think they're on the right path. They don't want their life to change, but they have no idea that they are lost. Anybody you know anybody like that? A Saul. That is Saul. All he wants to do is destroy Christianity. But here's the great thing about God. God had other plans. Amen? God had other plans. So that was Paul's life before Christ. Now write this down. This is Paul's conversion. Look in verse number three. This is Paul's conversion. Verse three, and it says this. As he was traveling, it happened. What does it happen reference? It references his conversion. It's his salvation. It happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Focus for just a moment on that word, suddenly. This is what theologians call the great interruption. This is the great interruption. This is when God suddenly appears, suddenly in the blink of an eye, and shows up in God in, in Paul's life. Paul later would write in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, he would say this, But when God, but when God who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. Right here in verse number 3, this is the but God moment. Are you all with me this morning? Back section, are you all with me? Balcony, are you with me this morning? Thank you, you got one. Can I get two? Can I get three? Right here is the but God moment. This is the moment of moments. This is when God intervenes in your life. This is when God comes in when you're walking down a path on a highway to hell, and this is when God jumps in because he's got something in store for you. This is, this is Saul's life. He was, he was a sinner. But he says, but God, according to Galatians chapter 1. Paul hated Jesus, but according to Galatians 1, but God. Paul hated and tried to kill Christians, but Paul says in Galatians 1, but God. And here's what we need to understand about salvation, is that God had set Paul apart from his mother's womb. From the very beginning of his creation, God knew Paul. And from the beginning of your creation, 
God knew you. And from the beginning of anybody else's creation, at that moment, God knows you. You are a human. You're not a fetus. You're not a blob. You are a person who has the dignity created in the image of God. And right here from the very beginning, God says, Paul, I knew you. I know you. For that moment on, God was watching Saul. As Saul grew up as a as a baby during the terrible twos. Moms, dads, are you with me? God was watching over Paul. When he comes to be a rambunctious teenager, God was watching Paul. When he was going through his rabbinical training, God was there. All along, Paul did he not, did not know that God was watching after him. He didn't know that God was tracking him. He didn't feel God's presence. He didn't have an experience with God. He didn't know anything about God. He wanted to get rid of God, but all along, God was with him the entire time. That's salvation. Paul did not seek this out. God sought him out. Folks, that's the way it is when it comes to salvation. Now, you and I, we may hear the terms, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And yes, that is true. That is what you are doing. But here's the reality. Are you with me? He chose you before you chose him. Your salvation does not begin with you. It doesn't. It doesn't begin with you. It begins with God. It begins with God, who is the one who so desires you, who knows you, who loves you, who knows every intimate thing about you, the good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent. God knows you and loves you so much that he took the first step towards you by sending his son Jesus, the perfect one, the perfect righteous holy one, to pay the penalty of your sins. God has already taken the first step towards you. You never take the first step. You, God always takes the first step, and it's already been taken. And some of you may be here this morning, you may say this, well, God, I need you to come in my direction. I need you to make a step into my direction. Will you show yourself to me? Reveal yourself to me. Hey, church people, listen, he's already made that step. He's already come your way. He's already come your way. Say, man, I love you. I want to be with you. He's already made that decision. He's already come your way. And now, here's where we say, now I accept Christ, because we can say this, now the ball's in your court. What are you going to do? As God has stepped towards you to show his love towards you, what are you going to do? Well, look at verse 4. Are you all with me this morning? I didn't mean to yell so loud this morning. Forgive me on that one. God's getting a little fired up right there. I'm fired up because Texas Tech won. That's so rare. It's just so rare. Just let me soak in that for just a minute, okay? It's a good thing. 
until next week. But look, look at verse 4. Look what Paul does. And he fell to the ground. Remember verse 3, a light flashed around him. It says this, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What does the text say Saul did? It says he fell to the ground. That must have been one bright light. Later on when he tells his testimony in Acts chapter 22, uh, chapter 26, he, he gives a little bit more detail about, uh, about his conversion experience. Do you know when this took place, at what time of day it took place? At noontime. Where's the sun at noontime? At pretty much the, the brightest point of the day. But apparently, this light is so bright that it put him on the ground. Now, how could that happen? Here's my best theological guess, is that this was the Shekinah glory. <laughs> this is the Shekinah. You know what the Shekinah glory is? It's the glory of the resurrected Jesus Christ. It's that presence of Christ, of God himself, that when you see that glory, you can't but help to fall to the ground. If you and I were to, to, to go throughout Scripture and, and read the different occasions when men and women came in, in contact with that physical manifestation of God himself in the presence of light, you know what every single person does in the presence of God's glory? You know what they do? They fall to the ground. You know what they do not do? They do not jump up and down and shout hallelujah. They fall to the ground and say, woe is me. Because when you see the holiness of God, what you will reply with is these words like what, what the great uh, prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah would say this, even Paul would say this, they would say this, I am the chief of sinners. Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. I have seen the glory of the resurrected God and I can't stand in his presence. That's what scripture says. When you look at the life of Abraham, in Genesis 17, he, became, he, he was in the physical manifestation, uh, the presence of God. He falls to the ground. Moses and Aaron in Numbers chapter 20, they come into the presence of the Almighty God. They fall to the ground. Moses, Exodus 34, comes into the presence. He falls to the ground. Joshua in Joshua chapter 5 comes into a physical manifestation of the holy presence of God, falls to the ground. Ezekiel, falls to the ground. Uh, John in the book of Revelation, John in the book of Revelation, who had walked with Jesus who walked with Jesus, but in Revelation chapter 5, he sees the glory of Jesus, and what does he do? Falls to the ground. In Revelation 4, 5, 6, 7, you read the 24 elders who are around the throne, who are worshiping and singing praises to the God, and praises to God, and it says this, we fall down. When you come into the presence of the Almighty God, it is never never about you. It is all about the glory of the Almighty God.
And church, I want you to hear me out closely on this. I think sometimes when we come to worship, we get it backwards. And we make it about us and not about the glory of God. Folks, we don't come here to sing about us. I'm not critiquing us that we are doing that. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying in general as believers in Jesus Christ, when we worship, it is never, ever about us. And so when we sing, we lift our eyes upward. Sometimes we can't fall to the ground physically, but spiritually we can. True conversion, true conversion leads to humility in worship. Are you with me, church? Got a little scared look on y'all's faces this morning. True worship, excuse me, true conversion is always done. And the example of true conversion is always in a humility of worship where we say, God, thank you. God, thank you for saving my soul. Well, this is Paul's conversion. Jump down with me to verse number 19. Let's look at Paul's life after conversion. Let's just read this. I'm going to read this, 19 through um, 22, and then we'll end up in verse 31. Verse 19, this is, this is Paul's life after conversion. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Do you think there's been a change in Saul's life? How quickly? Immediately, all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Verse 22, but Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived, in, who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Do we see an immediate difference? Do we see the, the difference that Jesus made in Saul's life? We see an immediate difference. We see a new attitude toward disciples. We see a new attitude towards those who are in the synagogues. We see a new attitude to, to growing in his faith. Once he wanted to kill, now he wants to, to fellowship with other believers. Uh, once he hated the truth, now he's teaching the truth. Once he was, he was out to destroy everything, now he wants to build everything up. Is this the same man? It's the same man, but he is a new man now. Amen? This is the change that God, that Christ can do in your life. Christ makes all the difference. Jump down to verse 31. Now let's close with this. Look at what verse 31 says. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed, what's that word? Peace. 
Now, what has happened since Acts 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8? What was going on? It's persecution. Who do you think was leading that persecution? <laughs> it's Saul. It's Paul. But now, he's a believer, and it says, the area enjoyed peace, being built up, and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it, the church, continued to increase. Amen? Do you think God can use one person to change an entire area? Yes, he can. Do you think God can use just one person to bring peace in the area? Yes. Can God just use one person to build up the church? Yes. Does God want to use just one? Uh-uh. He wants all of you. He wants all of you. God wants all of you. But here's how it happens. You ready? Students, you ready? Students, look up here. Look up here. You know how it happens? It's very simple. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, here's what happens. You live for Jesus. You live for Jesus. Don't go after the things of this world. Don't go after the things of this world. It never pays. It never will. You live for Jesus. Moms and dads, look up here. You need to so show your children how to live for Jesus. The world ain't showing them. You can't depend upon schools to teach godly values anymore. Is it happening? Yes, there are godly values being taught by godly teachers, but as a whole, it can't happen. Mom and dad, it's your responsibility. Which means, moms and dads, listen, look, moms and dads, here's what it means. You live for Jesus. Grandparents, please do not think the time has passed you by. Are you still breathing? Barely. Yes. <laughs> Are you still breathing? That means God still wants to use you. Grandparents, you don't be afraid. If you see your adult son and daughter not doing it the right way, don't be afraid to, to whip them like you did back in the day. Are you with me? Don't be afraid. Grandparents, show your grandchildren how to live for Jesus. You show them how to worship. You show them how to pray. You show them how to live for Christ in the difficult days. You do it. Because somebody did that for you.
Church, you keep praying and you keep believing and you keep sharing your story. Everybody here, you have a story that matters. It may not be as dynamic as Saul's conversion story. You may have been a believer since you were young, great, wonderful. But church, let's keep telling our story. You tell people what Jesus did, and you live for Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And I just pray that we'd be, we'd be in awe of the grace that you have showed us. And that we would say thank you for saving our souls. And then I pray, Father, that you would... Forgive us for not living boldly for you and living a life that has been changed by you. And Father, I pray that this morning we would commit to you to say, I want to live for you and nothing else. Heads bowed and eyes are still closed. I just want to ask you a question. Nobody looking, please. But I want to ask you this question that, that only the Holy Spirit will give you the answer. Here it is. Have you truly been converted? Have you truly been converted? If not, hear the voice of the Spirit saying, come home. Confess your sins bow your knee and repent and confess. But if you have not been converted, make, make a decision today to see, yes, God, you've been calling me. I acknowledge that. I now come home. Would you do that, please? Father, have your way with us. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said,